Welcome to the Emerging Minds Podcast. This podcast is part of a series called Listening to the Stories of Healing. Within the series, you will hear stories from community and the very diverse experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and how these narratives have shaped the amazing work that is happening in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities across Australia. Here at Emerging Minds, we like to call it the secret garden, the stories and experiences that non-Aboriginal people don't always get to see or hear. Whilst these stories include sadness and hurts and sometimes can feel uncomfortable to listen to, it is through listening to these narratives that you will get a glimpse of the deep wisdom, knowledge and healing practices of families and communities and understand why our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples a part of the oldest continuing culture in the world. Welcome everyone, this is Dana Shen, an Aboriginal cultural consultant working with Emerging Minds. Today we are speaking with Diana Uribe and Auntie Colleen Lovegrove on their work with Corner Windmill Yunti, also known as KWY. Auntie Colleen is a proud Ngunnawal woman, recently retired after 15 years in the field of domestic violence. Her recent role has been a caseworker at KWY. Diana is an accredited mental health social worker and former operations manager at KWY. Thank you so much, Aunt and Diana, for speaking to me today. Before we get into the detail of understanding more about your work and, and how you work with children, I wondered if each of you could talk a little bit more about you and the work you have done in Aboriginal and domestic and family violence Annie Colleen, I wondered if you could start first. Well, I'm Colleen and I belong to the Naranjeri people. Um, I've worked in the domestic and family violence sector, sector for many years. Um, I have extensive experience in working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island women. I work for Ninka Katanga Papapanga, the Aboriginal secured site for Aboriginal women and children. Also in the generic sector for domestic violence. I've been working with KWI for close to four years now in the Northern Hub team for families, experienced domestic and family violence. Thanks so much, Aunt. You've got a wealth of experience. We're so looking forward to hearing more from you today. Deanna, so now can you tell us a bit about you, you and your experience in working in the Aboriginal and domestic family violence space? Thank you, Dana. It's, uh, my name is Deanna Uribe. So I'm from Colombia. So I completed my master's in social work in 2017 at the Flinders University. I have worked in early childhood disability and social services sector for over 10 years. This included providing clinical expertise for working with children, young people and adults and the families with multiple mental health issues such as psychosis, depression, anxiety, um, mood disorders, suicidal issues and risk of harm to others. Through KWI, I worked providing direct ongoing therapeutic and complex case management, support to children and young people who have social, emotional and well-being difficulties. This including um, children who has been exposed to family and domestic violence, uh, trauma and abuse, removal from the family, um, substance misuse, unresolved grief and loss, family breakdown, social discrimination and racism. So I wonder now if we can have a chat about the KWI model of family work. 
Uh, Nicoleen, I wonder if you could start just by giving us a bit of a rundown of how that model looks. How does it operate here? Well, KWI, through its holistic family support hubs, monitors the safety of women and children. The hub model aims to reduce family violence within the family, prevent children from entering out-of-home care, help family to make sustainable change to reduce violence and increase safety, provide coordinated responses to address the complex needs of families, provide a flexible approach to meet the needs of individual families and promotes the safety of all family members. Uh, Can you talk a bit more about what the individual workers do in this model? I think the key for the success with KWI, with our families, is that each member is supported within the hub model. Children, men and women within the family unit have their own worker. Mm. It's not a one worker per family or one worker for an individual. It's we're actually working in a holistic way, which I find is very successful. And um, when we receive a referral as a team, we make arrangements to do an initial home visit with the family to introduce ourselves. At the initial visit, we give an explanation of the KWI service and how we work as a team. This uh, is then when the consent forms are normally signed uh, before leaving We leave a KWI information pamphlet with them and inform them of our next home visit or outreach appointment, whichever the client prefers. On the morning of every home visit, we will contact the client to confirm the visit before leaving. KWI doesn't have a cutoff point as well. We will continue working with the family until they feel they no longer need a service. Uh, it's up to the clients how long we support them. And I find that's really good. A lot of services do have a cutoff point for many reasons. And as a worker, I'm always respectful and patient. Uh, I normally don't like writing notes while I'm with a client. Sometimes I need to dot point a couple of things as a reminder, but I always ask permission first. And I usually make a joke of it, you know, old age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they usually have a bit of a giggle and, and, and give you permission. Um, KWY support workers engage with clients twice a week, wherever they feel more comfortable, whether that be in their homes or at a park, cafe. Clients engage better in their safe space rather than in a clinical setting. We have three workers per family, a men's worker, women's worker and a youth worker. While I'm supporting the woman, our men's worker simultaneously works with the perpetrator in a separate space for confidentiality reasons. And so that the woman can open up more to us, that no one else is around to hear, um, there's no consequences after we leave, that sort of thing. Our youth worker would normally have their therapy sessions within the children's school in confidential space. The ability to share information between workers within each hub allows a real-time instant response. Our aim is to improve the safety of women and children by providing specialised knowledge and culturally appropriate services to break the cycle of domestic violence and stem the flow of Aboriginal children into the child protection system across Australia. And um, I think one of the things that was really important about what you said is that there are different workers for different members of the family Mm -hmm. and as the staff work together with that family around that family you picked up on the role of the youth worker 
and I know that also includes working with younger children as well. Mm. Deanna, I wondered if you could talk more about the role of the worker that works with the child in this context. I think it's very important to highlight that before working with children, it's very important to gather as much information uh, about the child before engaging with the child or the young person. This can be through the family, or if appropriate, through the family, through the school, or the services involved, DCP or mental health services. This information, we normally do it through uh, the women's worker and the men's worker through a multidisciplinary team meeting. Sometimes we actually do come to the meetings with mom, the initial meetings with mom and dad and all the carers where we actually gathered information about what is going, what was happening, happening with the child, the young person. Through a series of mapping tools, so we use some mapping tools early stages just um, to focus on what is the risk and protective factors mm-hmm. around the child. Once we identify those risks and why we identify the protective factors, we can start to work with the child or the young person. But we do want to get as much information from the young person and the child before we actually continue the service. There are a number of things that are very important to think about it before commencing any support. So one of the things is the environment, so how it's going to look like. So obviously we ch- working with children under 12, we normally provide through school. Again, because it's a safe place, we don't provide the therapeutic support at home because always there's family around and things like that. So we normally provide the one-on-one support at school if it's under 12. And then after that, for children, all the children, we pick them up at school or high school. And then we normally ask them, where is the safe place they normally would like to go mm. to have that therapeutic support? This can be in a community centre. Sometimes it can be a school. I have found that a lot of uh, young people, they don't want other people to see them receiving that support at school. So some of them actually just ask you to take them to the beach to have that conversation, to talk about what's going on at home and in their lives. Another thing that is very important is the parents' engagement. That is actually really, really important when working with children and young people. If there is no parent engagement, obviously they won't be engaging. Sometimes I just come with a women's worker. I wait outside when the women's worker is with the mom. And you can see the young people and even children, they started to see you that you come in every week. You stay outside, you just say hello, but you're always there. And then as the time passed, they started to say, okay, I actually trust her because mama trusts the women's worker. So if the women's worker is um, the men's worker, they're providing support to my parents. I might want to know what's going on. I want to be part of this as well. Um, with the young people, uh, they, sometimes it has taken me up to six months. Uh, waiting for that is building that trust. Mm. Building a trust in young people and children because for them, even if they're in the middle of the family domestic violence, for them, safe place is home. They're scared that I'm coming there to remove them from mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that that is something that we, uh, as a practitioner, do take into account. Mm. When building rapport with the kids, there is a lot of things that I, I think I have learned through the years working with Aboriginal people, cultural supervision and cultural consultants. There is some things that I always am mindful when I'm working with young people and children. And those ones are, well, I'm very aware of the language and my behavior, in, obviously in a way that I'm not causing more shame, that I'm not re-traumatizing the child or the young person. Um, I'm very genuine. I try to be as genuine as I can with the mom, with the dad, 
for example, when I'm in the initial stages, we gather information through some mapping tools with the mom and the dad. So I'm genuine. I really want to let them know uh, and show them I want to know about the child. And I also uh, have learned to give time for silence as well. That's, mm. I think is something really important because as well as it works with adults, it's exactly the same with children. Sometimes they just don't like to talk. That's okay as well. Another thing that I think is very important is acknowledging that sharing information is a two-way process. So I always share a little bit about myself mm. and my journey. Like you said, I'm from Colombia, but I, I also have a journey. So I'm an indigenous woman from Colombia as well. So I share a little bit about that and I share a little bit about my traditions. And even though there might be some similarities and some not, but this is who I am. I think that is really powerful when you work with children and young people. And again, as I said, as a non-Aboriginal worker, I think I do take into account the knowledge that I receive from Aboriginal colleagues, from um, my cultural supervision, so I attend cultural supervision. And if, for example, I'm working with a young person or a child that um, is from the lands, so I make sure that I have a cultural consultant from the lands to give me that information. Gani Colleen, is there anything that you want to add on? Usually the child worker, the men's worker and the women's worker will talk together. Uh, well, the children aren't right. There's things going wrong at school. What's happened? Is there, Has anything happened at home with the parents? I might say, well, she's actually told me everything's good. And the men's worker might say, well, he stated this has happened and this has happened. So each one of them are indicators to us whether something's flowing right mm. or whether something's going wrong. Mm. And we can investigate that a bit more. Usually children are a great indicator of that around their behaviours. Mm. And, I, you know, as you're talking, what I can, I'm getting that sense that you as workers have to move with the ebb and flow of the family you're working with and the individuals you're working with. Mm. And you have to do it in a way where they can continue to trust you at every step of the way. It yeah. seems like a really challenging type of work to do, but also much more uh, holistic. I think deep listening is a key and, and leaving space for silence sometimes too. This gives the clients reassurance you are taking in their story mm. uh, and being respectful. I do a, a, a women's check-in uh, at every home visit and that's just a form of how they're feeling, uh, how they feel about their culture, how they're feeling about their living arrangements. That It's only a few questions, but it gives us a whole insight into what's going on with the client each week. Mm. And this document will indicate to me if I need to investigate and discuss a concern if the score was very low mm. in that. We also do a workers' checkout with them, and this is to let us know whether we are meeting the needs of the client. And if I don't get 10, 10, 10, I'm going to ask, where does she think I'm going wrong? What more can I help her with? Mm. This gives me an indication I need to be working on a certain area. So it's good for the worker to know these things. I will do a women's safety analysis as well, and that will be done uh, every four to six weeks, uh, unless circumstances change, of course, and then, then I will do it sooner. I do a case plan with every client and I empower the client to take a lead in their own care process to make sustainable change goals moving forward for their future. I'll do a safety plan with the client for their current situation. Also, if a situation changes and a client needs to leave. In the case where there is a pet, 
I will also do a safety plan for the pet. And the reason I have a safety plan for the pet is many women won't escape a volatile situation and leave a pet behind. I also give my clients all after hours emergency numbers in case something happens when a worker's not around or can't be contacted during the day. I'm not a wellbeing practitioner, but I always make sure every client has literature on grief and loss, anxiety and panic attacks to help them when a practitioner isn't with them. And there's certain exercises on that literature for them to do to bring themselves out of anxiety and panic attacks. Look, every practitioner works differently. Some of the other activities I will do is a geneogram. I'll do an activity with a client called the Tree of Life, which is an extension of the geneogram. I'll also do a negative positive tree, which is a, a bit of an art form, same as the Tree of Life. And this helps with your case plan. I have made up a document myself, which I call the relationship document, which I leave with the clients to fill out in their own time over a couple of weeks, as it has several pages. This document is a memory jogger of the good times, the good things in their relationship. This jogs their memories back to good times mm. and, and good things mm. in their relationship. And, I, you know, as you're talking, I'm getting that sense that you as workers have to move with the ebb and flow of the family you're working with and the individuals you're working with. Mm. And you have to do it in a way where they can continue to trust you at every step of the way. It yeah. seems like a really challenging type of work to do, really, but also much more uh, holistic mm. and working with the whole. Yeah, the longer you work with them, the more and more they trust you uh, around their confidentiality. They know that things are getting corrected without us revealing that they actually informed us of that. Mm. So we're not actually um, letting the other member of the family know that this had been revealed to us. We do it in a way where we can have that therapeutic session around that issue without them knowing that it was actually revealed. And it doesn't break their confidence in you, if you know what I mean. One of the, the issues that we understand can happen at different times is that you will see violence in families where children can be involved in that. Mm. Deanna, I just wondered if you could talk a bit more about how you work with that in that context. So yeah, I've worked with children who has um, used violence say, um, with their siblings. So the model is very flexible. In these specific cases, we try to provide one-on-one -on -one support in one week and then the second week we try to provide group support. So we have a series of group programs that we run for the young people. One of them is the Respect Sister Girls. For example, if you see two sisters that are fighting, they're fighting each other. So we provide that group support for them along with the one-on-one -on -one therapeutic support. That's great. So the aim of this is trying to work with the needs of the individual but also how people come together yeah. and ensuring that you build a positive or work towards a positive dynamic. So if you're developing a group work with children, you can actually start to see the interactions between each other and you can actually address them in that moment. It's a really great opportunity to talk about safety. It's a really opportunity to talk about and build the emotional literacy. As I listen to both of you, you are really talking about how... As a team, you work with a system of people. You've got the family system, and in that system you have individuals that you work with. So there's quite a lot of complexity in the work that you do across the board. 
What, in your point of view, do you feel are some of the, the greatest challenges in doing this kind of work? Uh, well, there's many challenges. Uh, a worker will come across a vast array of challenges. Look, it could be substance abuse, it could be children in care, it could be excessive gambling, it could be financial. If I'm unable to help clients in certain areas, I'll actually refer on to a specialist mm. that specialises in that area to help the clients. Normally, uh, when we refer on to somebody else, they'll always report back to us how that's going. So uh, we can keep encouraging the client. Mm. But yeah, if there's anything, we, we try and deal with all issues. But if there's a particular area that we're not succeeding in or we can't help as much as we'd like to, we'll then refer on to mm. someone who specialises in that area. And how about you, Deanna? Are there things that you've experienced as real challenges in that work? Any kind of difficulties, things that you've faced? Yeah, um, so I think one of the challenges are when working with children and young people is the parenting, the parents' engagement. Mm. Um, so if the parents are not engaging, obviously that will fracture that relationship in, in the sense that we won't be able to engage with the children and young people. I also wondered from you know your point of view, um, you know, as an Aboriginal woman, what needs to be in a service for it to be safe for our people? I wondered on your thoughts about that. Look, KWA isn't all Aboriginal workers. Mm. We have white workers, we have workers from different countries here. They all go through the KWY training mm. um, and there's uh, several training sessions uh, for all. Thanks, Aunt. So, Indiana, as a, as a Colombian woman who's Indigenous, working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, what have you learned in terms of what's important about creating, you know, competent spaces, culturally competent spaces, culturally appropriate spaces and services? I think it's very important as a practitioner to be on ongoing training around how, you know, protocols about, um, as well, understanding their own values and their own beliefs. They do guide our practice because this is how we are. So it's very important as a practitioner to recognize our own values and beliefs and they don't influence the way um, we work with the clients. It's very important to, I think, to reduce any cultural misunderstanding. I really, really use cultural consultants. That is really, really important. Mm -hmm. I guess attending a monthly cultural supervision is also very important. Mm -hmm. And when you're working, for example, in my case, I'm working with females and males, um, boys and girls, I guess that is very important to have those different views because there's the gender differences in there. So I will have one month, for example, a cultural consultant with a female, and then I will have with a uh, an auntie, and then I will be with an uncle on another on, on another month. So I guess that basic cultural competence is something that you always you are building because Aboriginal community is is very rich. You might be working with someone from the Ghana land, but it's completely different from working with a Nigerian person. So I guess that you the more information that you can get, the more you can assume. You kind of show why when you're working with a client or because they're Aboriginal there, you're working, oh yeah, they, I know the protocols. Their protocols are completely different and you need to acknowledge that. Just to add to that, you know, for healing and change to occur, there needs to be reconnection to our culture, community traditions, reconstructed through yarning, song, dance, art, weaving, fishing, and sometimes just spending time on country. Uh, it helps revigorate our culture, our ways. 
This helps us connect to self, to family, to community. And there are, uh, and we're very fortunate with KWY that we have an AOD practitioner, we have a wellbeing practitioner, and we have a cultural consultant. We have a cultural person who, we have some clients that are disconnected from their Aboriginality. Mm. They feel disconnected. You know, they may have been removed as a child and they're over 18 now, they're back out there on their own. They don't feel like they belong to the Western world and they know they're Aboriginal, but they don't feel connected. They're feeling totally disconnected. They don't know anything about their culture, their language. Sometimes they don't know a lot about their own family. So we do have one particular case at this particular stage, which this has happened to. Uh, We've brought in someone who's very culturally appropriate, Uncle Moogie, who has uh, sessions with this person once a week and is informing them of their culture, their history, dance, weaving. I know that uh, we've given her books on her traditional weaving and art and we do storytelling with her. She almost jumps in our arms when she says this at the front of her house because she's so thirsty for her own culture and for connection. Mm. And that's really, really important. With this particular family, we've gone as far as we can with our casework with this person. The family is on a good road now and moving forward, but we're keeping up the cultural support for Mm. her because there's a lot more of that that needs to make this person feel whole again Mm. and connected. So, you know, we're very fortunate that we have different practitioners within the same organisation that can really come together and help people and families or individuals and families that are supported by KWY. Great, aunt. Thanks. Going back to the cultural competence for non-Aboriginal practitioners, something that I really think is very important and I have learned over the years is to have someone to bash for you in the community as well. So you can say that you have worked in an Aboriginal organisation, but it's also good to say with who and who in the community actually bashed your practice. The uncles and aunties actually can bash for you. And other thing is as well to make sure that you use culturally appropriate mapping tools or assessments when you're working with your client. And that is very, very important because we want to, obviously, a lot of mainstream uh, mapping tools opens to bias. And uh, as a non-Aboriginal practitioner, I always make sure that I use culture appropriate tools as well. So I, I wonder now if both of you could share some of the successes that you feel you have had in working in this, with families in this space and what's made them most successful. You know, I feel the hub model, uh, being a holistic model within the family, helps significantly change for the success of every family. I believe because each person has an individual worker and we're all working together and because workers are debriefing all the time, we're all working towards that one goal for the success of this family. But really, I believe that clients are their own successes. You know, if they really want to make change, they will take on board the tools you're giving them to and They will take on the information, the guidance, the direction that you give them, and they will succeed. We've had some significant successes within KWY. Great. Thanks so much, Anne. Deanna, yeah, have you got any final words to say in regards to successes, things that you've felt have been 
you know, success for you or success for children and families. We also have, you know, young people that, I guess that what Andy said, if the parents engage and the parents actually engage with the program, that is, it, as well as it is, it would be affecting successfully for the children as well. Mm -hmm. Because we can provide that therapeutic support because the children will engage as well. So um, I have had young people with uh, drugs, substance abuse, use who had not, you know, who are at the end of the program, and when they were uh, close, it was going to be closed. They completely stopped and engaged. Um, something very important, I think, that it works with young people and is to look at what they're interested in, their goals, and making sure that they do follow through, making sure that supporting them so they can follow. So if a young person asks you for um, support, always, always be open to offer it. And if, if a young person said to me, I'm not ready now, that's okay. We will we talk about it or we will address that goal that you want to achieve. Thank you so much, Deanna and Annie Colleen. It was an absolute delight hearing about your work and it's always wonderful to be with both of you. So thank you so much. You're most welcome. Thank you, Tana, for inviting us. Thank you for joining us in our podcast series listening to stories of healing. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds, the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.